Thanks for listening to a special edition of the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. In response to COVID-19, we've canceled in-person worship services and are going online streaming only. Nina Reed was originally slated to teach today on the next piece in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're offering her teaching in podcast only this week. Our reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for 10 weeks, and we're still in the introduction. We spent eight weeks talking about the Beatitudes, the unexpected blessings of the kingdom of God. And last week, we read Jesus's you are statements. You are the salts of the earth. You are the light of the world. A temptation that I think exists when we move through the Sermon on the Mount this slowly is that we forget the bigger picture. So I want to take a quick flyover of where we've been and where we are going. Because the anatomy of this sermon is not only beautiful, but it's brilliantly structured by Jesus, crafted specifically to help the people understand and follow his words. So let's take a quick look at the structure. First, we have the inaugural blessings. The Beatitudes and the UR statements give the sermon momentum. These will give listeners the power to obey the following commands. And then we have six main commands that begin with, you have heard it said, where Jesus is going to reinterpret the law of Moses and apply the heart of God to each command. He's already told the people that they are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and now he's going to teach them how to live like it. So, in between the blessings and the commands is a passage that glues the two together and serves as the foundation of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This passage is tremendously important to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So important that if we don't believe what Jesus is saying here, we certainly won't take the rest of his sermon seriously. So we're going to dissect this passage that John read for us verse by verse, starting in 17, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So this is our starting point. Verse 17 is the foundation of the rest of the sermon. In this verse, Jesus makes it very clear that he sees himself as one who is fulfilling the law and the prophets. But what does that mean? We're going to explore that by defining law and defining prophets. So let's talk about the law. What is Jesus referring to when he says the law in this passage? When you and I hear the word law, we tend to think of rules and regulations. But Jesus is not referring simply to the ancient laws of Judaism here. Instead, Jesus is referring to a really significant part of the Old Testament, 
the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they tell the story of God's people from creation to covenants to exodus to the death of Moses. We cannot understate the importance of the Torah to the Jewish people. Whether, live, whether one lived during the reign of David or in first century Palestine, the Torah was vital to everyday life. It was the foundation of Jewish faith. It informed, nourished, and led the life of every Jewish person. Families recited passages from the Torah around the dinner table. Devout travelers meditated on its lessons as they walked from city to city. Communities leaned on it, and individuals clung to it in every area of life. We cannot understate the importance of the Torah to the Jewish people. But the way Jesus is talking in verse 17, evidently there are some who have come to think that Jesus, Jesus was abolishing or doing away with the Torah. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He spent time with sinners. He disregarded purity rituals, and he called himself the Son of God. All of those actions were seen as a threat to Torah and tradition by the religious elite. But in the latter half of 17, it is clear that Jesus didn't see himself as one who was abolishing the law, but as one who was finally fulfilling it. So how did Jesus fulfill the law? I see three main ways. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He taught the law perfectly. And he fulfilled the imagery of the law perfectly. So when I say he obeyed the law, I want you to think of the New Testament, which tells us that Jesus was entirely without sin. He obeyed the law and he walked in the way of complete righteousness his entire life. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying it. And moving on, we also see Jesus teaching the law and interpreting the law perfectly. In the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see Jesus reinterpret the law through the lens of God's love. And in this interpretation, the law is finally fulfilled. Last, Jesus fulfills the imagery of the law. His identity fulfills the imagery placed throughout the Torah. He is the crusher of the serpent's head in Genesis 3, the king over the nations in Genesis 49, the new Moses, the final sacrifice, and the high priest. Jesus fulfills the law just by being Jesus. So now we're going to move on to the prophets. Who were the prophets? Throughout the Torah, God established a relationship with the nation of Israel through the leadership of Moses. But after Moses' death, Israel needed someone new to mediate that covenant relationship. Eventually, the prophets became the mediators between God and Israel, acting as God's spokespeople. So throughout Israel's nation, history as a nation, there was almost always someone speaking prophetically, addressing Israel's past, present, and future. One of the most frequently talked about themes among the prophets was the future hope of Israel. Prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Malachi, and Elijah all planted seeds of messianic hope. They alluded to a Messiah who would come to the broken world and the broken nation of Israel 
and lead the people into a right relationship with God. By the first century, we see that this was a major hope and longing among the Jews. People scoured texts from the prophets and came to believe that the Messiah was indeed coming and that there would be signs preceding his arrival, one of which was the reappearance of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually asks the disciples who all of the people think he is. The disciples respond in various ways. They reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So based on Jesus's miracles, the great authority with which he taught, and the ripples of change that were happening around him, the people knew God was at work in Galilee, in Jerusalem, and the surrounding cities. But they didn't know the extent. They thought Jesus was the opening act. In response to this, though, Jesus says, No, I am the main event. I'm the one the prophets spoke of, and I've come to fulfill thousands of centuries of hope. It wouldn't be long before Jesus would show himself to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, the everlasting king of Samuel, and the victor of Psalm 22. In the way that Jesus fulfills the law, Jesus also fulfills the prophets. So when we talk about the relationship that Jesus has with the law and the prophets, there's one event in his ministry that I think brings a profound amount of clarity and offers a visual for us. So we're going to turn to the story of the transfiguration. Um, you can find that on, in your Bibles in Matthew 17, and it goes like this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is a really rich story. Jesus has taken his closest disciples up a mountain, and he begins to shine magnificently. And shortly after that, Moses and Elijah appear next to him. And Peter, who's trying to wrap his mind around what is going on, does what he thinks is best, and he offers to make three altars honoring the three men. So let's pause here. Who was Moses? He was the one who received the Ten Commandments from God, the one who talked with God as friends talk, and the one who instructed Israel on how to build the tabernacle, how to follow God in the wilderness, and how to become the covenant nation of Israel. Moses, simply put, is the face of the Torah. He's the face of the law. And what about Elijah? 
we remember Malachi 4, verse 5. Elijah was the famous prophet who was prophesied to return and make a way for Israel's Messiah. He was among the most famous prophets, and he came to be known as a representation of the prophets as a whole. So like Moses is the face of the law, Elijah is the face of the prophets. So after the transfiguration, the disciples realize they are in the presence of Israel's hall of fame. And something really interesting happens. While Peter is trying to build three altars for three men, God interrupts him and he makes a proclamation. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. In the presence of Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, the Father extends the highest honor and the greatest authority to the Son. Let me say it again. In the presence of the law and the prophets, Jesus is given the greatest authority. Listen to him. So this is what Jesus had in mind when he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He doesn't do away with them. He doesn't abolish them. He doesn't cast them aside. But in his obedience, his teaching, and his identity, the law and the prophets finally find their home and their true meaning. So what does this mean for us as believers? What does it mean for people who are about to study the Sermon on the Mount in depth? At the beginning, we talked about how Jesus structured the Sermon on the Mount in a very purposeful and strategic way in order for the audience to understand and follow his commands. Verse 17 gives us a strong foundation. If we believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, then we know that he is the highest authority on everything else that we're going to cover. So where do we go from here? Verse 18 through 20 give us three steps that I believe will help us become people who are truly shaped by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So step one, which we will find in verse 18, don't throw away the Old Testament. In verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, the Old Testament is important, and it's not going anywhere. So how do we honor this appropriately today? In part, I believe this means healing our relationship with the Old Testament. Growing up, I heard that there is this sort of cognitive dissonance between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That God was angry. This God is nice. So for years, I avoided the first three quarters of the Bible because I didn't know how important it was to my life as a follower of Jesus. But I've come to find out that it's not only important, but it's vital. So in this verse, Jesus is telling believers, do not throw away the law. Do not abandon the prophets. Don't let go of the story from Genesis to Malachi. So why would he say this? I think the word accomplish in verse 18 has something to do with it. 
nothing will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. We are moving towards an end, an accomplishment, an arrival. Think of Revelation 22, when all is made well, when heaven and earth collide, and our relationship with God is fully restored. The last chapter of the Bible bears remarkable similarities to the first chapter of the Bible. I don't think that's an accident. The beginning of our story has everything to do with the end of our story. We should cling to it, learn it, admire it. I think it's also important to point out that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. When Jesus taught, he wasn't using Paul's letters. He was using Genesis, Isaiah, the Psalms. So if you want to take the Old Testament for a spin, I suggest starting with the Psalms or take a look at the unfolding narratives in Genesis or learn about the kings of Israel in Samuel and Kings. I firmly believe we can only benefit from spending time in the Old Testament. Don't throw away the Old Testament. So this leads us into step two. Jesus commands us to listen to and obey his teachings. In verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, the commandments given to Moses and the teaching found in the law are just as important to Jesus' followers as they were for the Israelites. But he puts a twist on it. We're commanded to follow the law as interpreted by Jesus. In the coming months, Jesus is going to use a phrase over and over again. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus's interpretation of the law typically takes a behavioral issue and turns it into an issue of the heart. I think it would be irresponsible to read the Sermon on the Mount and make the claim that Jesus is concerned with our actions alone. In his reinterpretation, he makes it clear that he is highly interested in our motives, our feelings, our inner worlds. Jesus cares about the seeds of sin. Murder begins as anger. Adultery begins as lust. So we'll soon see that Jesus' interpretation of the law is not just a reiteration of it. It is a deep, wise interpretation of it based on Jesus' ultimate knowledge of the human heart. Verse 19 also hints that there's going to be a temptation to set aside the teachings of Jesus, to preserve our own self-interest, to avoid the toughest commands and compromise with the world. Jesus anticipates, anticipates this temptation and encourages us not to set aside what seem like non-essential commands. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find out that big sins start in small places. And as protection against this, Jesus says, do not cast my teachings aside. Even when it seems inconsequential, it's not. 
Verse 19 also shows us that following Jesus is a community practice. Setting aside Jesus' commands will have community ramifications, not just individual consequences. Big sins start in small places, and they affect and infect the people around us. Returning to my earlier comment about Jesus' purposeful structure of the sermon, I think Jesus said this verse here to prepare his audience. In effect, he is saying, get ready. The commands I'm about to give are of dire importance. Follow them. So some of you might be asking, how do we follow the law today in the way that Jesus seems to require? This leads us to the last step, three. Share in Jesus' righteousness. Verse 20 says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is possibly the most uncomfortable verse of the passage, and I believe Jesus ends with it on purpose. A shallow reading of this verse might leave us feeling like Jesus was an advocate for legalism, but we know that's not true of Jesus, so let's take a closer look. Jesus uses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as a standard in this verse. So who were they? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were outstanding. They knew the Torah by heart. They followed every law, and they were deeply devoted to Yahweh and the future of Israel. And knowing what we know about Pharisees and teachers of the law, we ask this question, who can exceed their righteousness? No one. On our own, not one of us can exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee. Jesus knew that. The crowd knew that. So why did he say it? Because he knew something that the crowd didn't know yet. In a short time, Jesus would go to the cross. He would die a criminal's death and be laid in a tomb. Three days later, he would rise and eventually ascend to the Father, finally sending the Holy Spirit in his wake. So why does this matter? Because without this part of the story, we will never achieve the righteousness that is required of us. Jesus isn't telling people to hunger down and work harder and harder and earn righteousness. He's purposefully setting an impossible standard that we can only meet if we rely on him. Jesus did what the law could not do. In his death, He shared his righteousness with us. And in sending the Holy Spirit, Jesus has enabled us to do the impossible. So as we get ready to go deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, keep this verse in mind. Righteousness is a part of the DNA of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has not only given us his righteousness, but he has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live righteous lives. We are kingdom people. Now he's going to teach us how to live like it. God, thank you so much for the ability to still connect with one another uh, through online. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to teach and to talk about your word. And I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray for the people of Tulsa, um, the people of Cornerstone who um, aren't able to meet in person Um, but are listening online or are gathered in small groups with their apprentice groups or with their families. 
Um, I pray that you would bless everyone um, during this period. Pray that you would bless um, everyone's health and that you would help us in this time to be wise, to be vigilant, um, and to practice being the people of God in small places. We love you and we trust you. Amen.